Welcome to Relevant Faith Church this morning. My name is Mike Womer. I am the lead pastor here at Relevant Faith, and we are excited that you have joined us for worship today. It is so good to see everyone this morning. I don't know about you, but I thought we were done with this thing called winter, or at least with the white stuff. But then again, this is Illinois, and uh, central Illinois, and it will snow even from time to time, even on Easter. We have known that to happen. So, Again, welcome. It's good to see you. We have been in a series for the last uh, s- several weeks. This is the fifth message in this series called Countercultural, where we have been preaching and talking and, and just ministering in the, in the Word of God as it relates to handling different parts of our journey with Christ and that are countercultural to what we have come to know in life, and not, and the idea of countercultural is not necessarily for the sake of being different or even difficult, but literally for the sake of being biblical. Trying to to gauge what a biblical life looks like, and so we talked a lot about a lot of different areas. And if you missed any of this series, you can get on rfcpeoria.com, click on the listen link, and you can listen to any one of these first four messages online. And uh, hopefully, they have been a blessing. Um, we talked last week about countercultural faith, and I, and I felt like there was something, and we talked, um, we talked using the story of Joshua and the boldness and the audacity that he had to ask God to hold the sun up in the sky. It was, it's, it's one of these things that is almost seemingly a ridiculous prayer. And we talked about the boldness of faith, the boldness of speaking to God and asking God for things um, as it relates to his word and consistently with his will and watching him show up regardless of how foolish it almost sounds. And we highlighted the idea that Joshua not only did this and asked this foolish question of God to hold the sun up in the sky it, 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 come, it helped me to realize a couple of things about God. Number one, I don't even have to have the science right in order for him to move on my behalf. Because as we all know, it's the earth that revolves around the sun. The sun isn't what goes up and what comes down. It's the earth's revolution that causes it to look like it's rising and setting. But Joshua just said, hold the sun up in the sky a little longer. And he did this in front of the army which he commanded, the army in which he was leading into battle And on top of that, he did this in front of the armies that they were battling. And so it's almost like, man, you have got to have some serious foolishness to ask a question like that and then to do it in front of all these people. What if God doesn't move? What if God doesn't show up? What if he doesn't do what what you've asked? And so we talked about how it just takes a boldness to live a countercultural faith. And so today we are going to talk about the journey of faith. I always refer to our, our walk with Christ as our faith journey. Every single journey is different. Every journey takes us in places, takes us to places we've never really seen. And my journey and your journey couldn't be any more different. And so the idea of this countercultural faith journey is what we're going to talk about today. And this is going to be a challenging message in some ways because I, we're going to look at the most countercultural teaching in all of Scripture. And that's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he preached some ideas and thoughts 
that in that time period were quite revolutionary and even countercultural. And so we're going to look at some of these words. And so in order to really get a gauge and understand the context of this message, we have to first understand that as believers, as Christians, as, they are, as, we, as, we, as you were called, if you have committed your life to Christ and you have submitted to his authority and leadership, you are called a Christian, according to scripture in the book of Acts, first Christians called Christians at Antioch. And so you are a Christian. And to be a Christian means to be like Christ. So we have to actually listen to Christ in order to become like Christ. There are so many different perspectives and so many different thoughts and ideas as to what Christianity is like. People, everything from hearing, well, my faith is mine, personal, and it's private, which is not actually a biblical thought, but it's one that is, resonates in a lot of lives, of hearts and lives of people, all the way to if your faith doesn't look like mine, then you're not doing it right type Christians. And I'm sure we all know someone on that spectrum and that journey is somewhere. I, at one point in time, was the guy who had no faith, then radically saved and changed my life, and then quickly became the one who says, well, if your faith doesn't look like mine, then you must not be doing it right. Yeah, I was that legalistic one that I think for about five minutes forgot where I came from. And so, uh, so we all have this, this journey that we are on with Christ. And my spiritual father, my mentor, one of the things he would always say to me was, enjoy the journey. Just enjoy the journey. And how many know that sometimes the journey of faith and, and life is not necessarily always enjoyable? And if your life is constantly enjoyable, then let me trade lives with you for five minutes because mine's not constantly enjoyable. I find joy in my journey everywhere I go, whether I face a struggle or a trial or not. But the reality is the flesh of me is not necessarily enjoying every single thing I'm experiencing, especially the things that I cause to be pain in my life. And so we have this idea of, of Christ and what it means to live like Christ but I think somewhere along the line, it's gotten kind of twisted a little bit. It's gotten, the context has gotten kind of lost a little bit. So my hope today is to restore some of that context and some of that idea of what it looks like to truly follow Christ in a countercultural way, to have this countercultural faith journey, if you will. And it's found in the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Um, and I'm not, this scripture is not going to be found up on the screen. I, uh, there's a whole lot that's here, and I'm not preaching at all. Um, just some points and highlights that I feel like God has led me to. And so uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn to it. If you have your device, you can open it up. But Matthew chapter 5, and I read out of the New Living Translation. You know, Jesus is giving this teaching. He saw the crowds, they're gathering. He calls his disciples, and he begins to teach and instruct them. And it starts out beautiful. It's this beautiful image of God's, Jesus saying, well, God blesses those that are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And I can imagine, I like to put myself in the middle of the area in which this is taking place, and I can imagine disciples all captivated by his words, because after all, it was Jesus when he spoke the angels were commanded to pay attention. Demons even shuddered at the thought of his name. So there has to be something powerful about him when he speaks. And 
Then he says, well, God blesses those who mourn for they will be comforted. You know, he's speaking to the hearts of people and he says, God blesses those who are humble for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice. They will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful and they will be shown mercy. And it continues on and on and these wonderful, beautiful thoughts and ideas of God's blessing, including in verse number 11, which I think for some of us is a very difficult thing to hear, but God blesses you when people mock and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. He says, be happy about it. Be very glad. I don't know about that one. So he starts getting into some things. The disciples are probably like, oh, that's beautiful. Humility, that means I'm going to inherit the world. I'm going to inherit the kingdom of God. Mercy is going to flow. Grace is going to be abundant. This is going to be a beautiful thing. And then he says, be happy about persecution. Be glad about it. Basically what Jesus is saying is you should rejoice that this is taking place in your life. And then disciples, I think their, their attitudes are probably starting to shift a little bit, just like, just like regular folks in church, you know, when you're talking about grace and the love of God and the mercy of God and the, and, and the majesty of God, it's, it's this beautiful thing. And it's like, oh, I love, man, this guy can preach. Ah. Then he tells me I got to be holy. Oh. I got to be righteous. Oh. I got to be obedient. You know what? We're not coming back to this church. That's... That's kind of the journey of faith in churches. And he goes on, and I don't, I don't think that suggests that the disciples were any different. I mean, if you think that they were any different, probably should read a little bit more because some of the folks that he called were just like you and me. Tax collectors, otherwise known as thieves. Common folks, uneducated. Educated and uneducated. It, he, he crossed every barrier, every boundary in society would have ever placed. Jesus crossed them when he called who he called. So they were just oftentimes, most of the time, just like you and I. And he would go on in verse number 13. He would say, you are the salt of the earth, but what good is the salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? Jesus tells them, you are the salt. What good are you if you've lost your flavor? He says, it'll be thrown and trampled underfoot as worthless. So now the connection is starting to have, wait a minute, Jesus, you said I am the salt. And if I lose my flavor, then I become worthless? It's kind of what it sounds like. So then I think, I think what starts to happen in this moment is in their sandals, their toes start to curl up so, uh, so as to not be stomped on. Then he tells them, you're the light of the world, like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp, then puts it underneath a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. That right there suggests that your faith is not private. It's not meant to be kept just to yourself. Otherwise, why would Jesus even tell you that, you're, that, that, you're, that you are the light of the world and you should be on a place where everyone can see? Because part of the problem with everyone seeing is now everyone sees my, flaw, my flaws and my faults. And if they see my flaws and my faults, then they're not going to think that I'm good enough. And if they don't think that I'm good enough, then what comes from that? So therefore, we take this basket and we place it over top of our light and say, oh, let me hide this away. I don't want anybody else to see my realness. And if you like that type of place, you might be in the wrong place because I'm about as real as they come. 
sharing in all my faults and fla- failures just the same so that, that's, so that you can, people can see that you know, God is the faith, the journey of faith. Everybody's journey of faith is different and leads us into different places. And so he could continue on. He teaches about the law and how it is separated and how he has not come to abolish the law but to fulfill the law. Then he talks about anger. And he makes a countercultural statement and says, You have heard that your ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject, subject to judgment. And judgment and punishment for murder could have been a host of things. It could have been you thrown in with a den of lions. You could have been crucified, crucified upside down, stoned to death. There was a whole sort of create, creative ways to kill someone who committed murder. Then Jesus says, but I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Oh, it's gotten real now. Because I got no issue with not not committing murder. For me, murder is like, come on, for real? At least I ain't killed nobody. That's, I at least hold on to that for the most part. Now, I might be messed up, but at least I ain't killed nobody. We somehow put that on this pedestal as if this is the worst thing that could possibly happen is I killed somebody. But Jesus says, but if you're angry, you're subject to the same judgment as the murderer. This started to shift the thinking of the disciples and everyone even around him. So much so that he talked about this anger and this unforgiveness and said, if you're offering a sacrifice and it's recalled to your mind that somebody has something against you, put your sacrifice down and go and be reconciled to that person. Wait a minute. I got an ex-wife. You tell me I need to be reconciled to my ex-wife? Yep. Well, I I got a dad who abandoned me. Should I be reconciled to that man? Yep. This is where it starts to get difficult. This is why I said, hold on to your seats a little bit because this may take you somewhere into some places and touch some parts of your heart that you don't necessarily want to be touched. And I get it because I come from an environment that there are so many things and reconciliations that I've had to go through in my life that I'd really rather not have gone through. And I'm certain there's a few more. Then he goes on in verse 27, and I'm I'm doing this so that you can see the context and see the direction and the path of this journey that Jesus is leading us on. And he goes on in verse 27, he says, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. For the most part, until more recently, the idea of adultery was like, no, I'll steady be a bad husband and a bad dad, but I'm not going to cheat. That had been the sentiment for so many years Today, it's not necessarily so cut and dry. But Jesus then would go and say, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust (laughs) has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. That's a little drastic, don't you think? I think Jesus got a little bit of a flair for the dramatic. At least don't, don't think I'm blasphemous for saying that, please. He said some things. 
that line up with that. But he says, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. See, he starts talking about hell. It's a very real place. And he starts talking about it. And it starts to rub folks the wrong way. And the last thing I've ever wanted to be in my life, because I once was that person, is that, that doom and gloom, fire and brimstone preacher. Because the reality is I, I, I want people to love Christ because they love him, not because they are scared to death of him. I'm scared to death to go to hell, so I'm going to follow Jesus. The reality is that's not really following Jesus. Because following Jesus is all about love and it's all about grace. And I promise you we're going to get there. It doesn't sound like it right now, but we're going to get there. You know, so he would continue to teach. He said, if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, to cut it off. Then he teaches about divorce, and he says some pretty strong things about divorce. And understood that there are biblical reasons that divorce is acceptable. First, understand that God's first and primary goal and hope and dream and vision is that there is reconciliation where there can be reconciliation. Again, there are biblical thoughts towards acceptable divorce. He teaches about vows. He teaches about anger and, re and revenge. I love this one. He says, you've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not Resist an evil person. If someone, <laughs> whew, I'm already having problems with this. And I haven't gotten it out yet. If someone slaps you in your right cheek, offer the other cheek as well. So what you're saying is if somebody slaps me here, I should just say, go ahead and slap me here. Pretty much. See, the whole journey of faith, these are the things that you don't hear talked about often because they're not popular. They're not cool. They're not making me feel good about where I am in my life. Here's another one. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat as well. <laughs> you won. You took my shirt. Here, take my coat as well. Just, it's just a countercultural even way of looking. And then here we have, I'm going to finish with this and get to some of the thoughts that I have based on this teaching. He says, you've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. Whew. We've talked about that here as part of the vision and the culture of Relevant Faith Church being a multi-ethnic church, multi-generational, multi-ethnic. That's our, that's our passion. That's our vision. Sometimes it's it works and looks amazing. Other times it is painful and difficult to endure and walk through, but it is still nonetheless the vision of this house. And part of that is because our, my desire personally and hopefully for the church is that you don't desire to live and walk and, and do life with people who look and think and act just like you. I look at my own life and say, if I do life with everyone who looks and thinks and acts just like me, we are going to have a seriously messed up group. There are going to be all kinds of problems, and we don't even need to get into all of those. You've been around me long enough, you'll know, and you'll say, hey, man, nobody wants that group. That would be a small group attended by one. It'd be me. 
But the reality is that's the goal. And Jesus even said, if you love people who look like you, think like you, act like you, what reward is there in that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. We're not, we think we're loving folks, but we're not, if we're not, literally, if we're not feeding the poor and we're not making homes for the orphans and we're not doing those things, then what good is what we are doing? Because even tax collectors do that much. It gets difficult. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be, this is, this is where the challenge becomes, you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So now, obviously, you have Jesus here speaking, and he's telling you to be perfect. How much of a reality is that, that I could be perfect? Truth is, I think in that moment, Jesus knows there's no way for you to be perfect. If there was, then there, what, would, what need would there be for me? But here's what I've come to figure out and realize in life. When you strive to glory, glorify God and you strive to give all that you have and your absolute best to God, when you miss, because Lord knows you're going to miss, when you miss, you land in this place that I will call holiness, righteousness, a man after God's own heart, a woman of faith. That's where you land. When you strive for just enough, and that's the max of what you're looking for. When you miss that target, where do you find yourself? Not quite enough. And I'm not talking about good enough for others. I'm talking not quite enough to inherit the kingdom of God. So there's some things that there's a couple of ideas, three ideas in particular that I want you to have through this idea, through this teaching is number one, in order to walk this countercultural journey of faith, you have to understand that the teaching of Jesus were radical teachings. They were radical teaching. This sermon preached by Jesus is one of the most countercultural teachings in all of Scripture. Everything Jesus had to say made sin a matter of the heart. Because if you look back on the law, you'll find if you do this, then this is what's going to happen. If you commit murder, then this is the judgment. If you commit adultery, this is the judgment. But Jesus says it's not just about the action. It's about the heart behind the action. So Jesus made everything about the heart. He says if you've committed adultery, even if you've looked at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. If you hold anger and bitterness towards someone, where are those things stored? In my heart. Jesus made everything about the heart, it was no longer just about the action. The action was important, but not just about the action. It was about the heart. And this is why the Pharisees hated him so much. Because they were all about the surface, all about what you can see. And as long as they could polish up what you can see, they felt like they were good with God. The problem is, you can polish all of this. But when this is still rotting from the core, we'll find ourselves short of his kingdom. The external punishment for sin could have been crucifixion, stoning, being thrown off a cliff, banished to prison, fed to lions. Jesus would then come on the scene. He would commission his disciples and the apostles to go and preach the gospel all over the world. 
teach them and make disciples. And Paul would be one of these overwhelmingly committed to Christ gospel teaching men. And everywhere he went, he would make disciples because he was the very first and the original church planter. He would go into city after city after city, nation after nation, and plant churches and raise up men and women of leadership to lead and teach and preach. And he would not shy away from this, this countercultural and even radical teaching. Go look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He's speaking to the church. He says, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the gospel message that he's preaching. He's saying, It's my old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but he that lives in me. Think about that. Think about that as we make the decisions and the choices that we make with our lives. We actually first got it wrong when we suggested that it was our life. If you you have dedicated and committed your life to Christ, then I'm sorry to tell you, you were bought. You were bought with the price of blood that was shed for you on the cross at Calvary. He said, boom, I'm shedding my blood. That means I've purchased you and all of your sin. I'm not just purchased what looks good. I've purchased what looks good. I've purchased what's ugly. I've purchased what you hide. I've purchased what people see. I've purchased what people find out. I've bought it all. And it's now no longer you that lives, but it's the I that lives in you. See, once you have committed and dedicated your life to Christ, if you truly want to see God move in your life, if you truly want to see miraculous things take place, then it's got to be a no longer I, but Christ that lives within me. Because when we make it about I, and we make it about our choices and our decisions, it gets twisted. It gets murky. It becomes as clear as mud. Conversation I had with my 17-year-old daughter. She's graduating high school this year, and she had this grand, glorious plan of going off to Tulane University in New Orleans, Louisiana. Great school. Love the idea. No, not my daughter. Not New Orleans. No, thank you. Been there. Done that. Unsaved Mardi Gras. It's this season right now. I've been there. I, 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 a matter of fact, I, was, I have some friends that are in, Mardi, in New Orleans right now doing outreach ministry in Mardi Gras. And I remember clear as day, clear as day, 23 years ago, I was that person sitting in that street doing things that we need not talk about in church. Be creative, you'll probably figure it out. And then some. But I'm talking to my daughter, and that's why I didn't want my daughter in that school, that that city. But at the end of the day, my desire is that God does whatever he wants to do in her life. Wherever that takes her, that takes her. I was just praying, God, if it is not your will, please take that thought out of her mind as quickly as humanly possible. We'd, tra- we'd go in through the next several months to where she would come on her own. I'm so thankful for this. So come on her own to say, God, Dad, I want to move to Minneapolis, Minnesota and go to college. It's like, it's cold up there. So like, I don't care. And she's gone, so she has decided to go off to a Bible college in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And when it's all said and done, it's not going to cost me any money. 
So not only did God answer my prayer to take her out of a city I really didn't want her in, but it's not even going to cost me anything to get her out of there financially. Anyway, I'm going to lose my daughter for a little while, and that's going to hurt. Moving on. But Paul is talking to the church, and he's telling them, it's no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives in with me. So I live in this earthly body, but I only live in it by trusting Jesus. Because he's the one who loved me. He's the one who gave himself for me. So I'm going to trust him. So this whole idea that you can read through in Matthew chapter 5, the teaching of Sermon on the Mount, even into Matthew chapter 6, there's another theme that you will find. This is going to be your least favorite part of the message, likely. And it's this idea of radical obedience. It's radical obedience. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 21 through 23 says it like this. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Take your burnt offerings and your other sacrifices and eat them yourselves. <laughs> when I led your ancestors out of Egypt, I was, it was not burnt offerings and sacrifices I wanted from them. This is what I told them. Obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Do everything as I say and all will be well. He said, you know what? All your sacrifices, all that you got, go ahead and use it for yourself because I don't want that from you. I want your obedience. I want your willingness to do what I tell you to do, even if it's not, it doesn't make any sense, even if it's the most unpopular thing that's going to take place. And this Sermon on the Mount is the greatest, I believe, one of the greatest evaluations of an obedient lifestyle. Because it's real simple. Do you have anger? When someone smacks you in the face, are you saying, all right, well, here you go. I'll give you my other cheek, or are you going at them? Because the idea is you hit me, I'm coming at you. That's the thought, right? Let's, trans let's transition that into your driving. And I say that. Remember, I remember my preface. Every single time I preach, I preach first to who? Me. So when I say this, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ, but in your driving, somebody cuts you off. Ooh. I remember one time I was, I was all about them being a moron, an idiot who taught you how to drive. Not realizing that my then like seven-year-old child is in the seat behind me. It would happen again later on. And she would say, Daddy, that guy's a moron, isn't he? <sighs> Broken heart, bleeding all over my car. Like, oh my gosh, what did I teach my child? So it, it's, it's, it's even to that point when someone cuts you off. Yes, serving Christ is difficult. Being obedient to God is difficult. When you walk in this journey of life and somebody cuts you off, it's like, oh! It's everything I can do not to rip their face off. That's why this idea that Jesus is preaching is this great evaluation tool to this obedience. It gets down to the nitty-gritty issues of our daily life. And whether we are walking in obedience or not, is our simple walk, everyday walk submitted to Christ. It's easy to submit to him in the big things. It really is. Jesus, you are the Lord of my life, and I love you, and I serve you. Wait a minute. You want me to do what? And then you ask the question, well, how do I know if it's God or if it's me? That's real simple, right? It's like, oh, God told me something. I don't know if that's God or if that's me. Maybe I should take a step back and just kind of... See how this works out. My answer is really simple. Is it in the Bible? Then it's God. It's that simple. 
But it's this idea of obedience, and not just obedience, but it's this radical obedience. Because this radical obedience is what leads to holiness, what leads to righteousness, what leads to the ultimate day when it says, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's where obedience leads you. It leads you to exactly where you want to go. There's no other way there. We want to have these other paths. We want to say, man, this is, this is a path. Let's just check out this path. This seems a little be a little bit easier. I recently heard a message preached, and it was one of the most profound things I've heard, but so simple at the same time. I was like, man, I got to preach this, and I feel like it fits right now, so I'm going to. He said, whenever he approaches anything, when it comes to obedience and radically serving God and holiness and righteousness, he's met with the same argument over and over and over and over. And the argument is, well, that's a narrow-minded way of looking at things. And he used to always go back, this preacher would always go back and question Man, am I seriously narrow-minded? Everybody keeps telling me I'm narrow-minded when I say this is what the gospel says. This is what obedience is. This is what holiness is. This is what righteousness is. I'm narrow-minded. And then he said he had this epiphany-type moment and said, you know what? Maybe, just maybe, our minds need to be narrow in order to walk on the narrow path. And when he said that, I was just like, whoo-hoo. Because the Bible is very clear. Narrow is the path that leads to righteousness. But wide is the gate that leads to death and destruction. So if you're looking for a wide path and you find yourself a wide path that you feel like, oh yeah, I can just kind of wander my Sunday. Anybody ever seen the, the, the 90 year old on a Sunday drive? There's this one funny sat, sat, satirical video that shows this woman like this on this country road all over the entire thing, nice and slow, taking her time. If your life and your journey with Christ is on this hugely wide path that you can go so far to the right without feeling conviction or so far to the left without feeling conviction, then you might need to narrow your path or probably find another one. Matter of fact, I think those paths that go through the woods that are meant for mountain bikes that are like this wide and people are flying, it's like, how are they not getting hit by the trees? That might be the right path. And it might sound narrow-minded, and you might think, man, that's just ridiculous. Here's the reality. Narrow is the path and the gate that leads to righteousness, but wide is the path and the gate that leads to death and destruction. And so if it is narrow-minded, then maybe I'm on the right track. The reality is obedience to God is this radical concept. It's this radical idea that doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, then you say, well, how do I even attain this holiness and this righteousness, it's not about the work that you do. You cannot, you cannot legalize faith in your journey. You cannot put rules and regulations on faith, your faith in your journey walk because all that does is create bitterness and frustration and anger. There's one way and only one way to find yourself in the holiness, righteousness, and obedience of God, and that's by seeking Him. I could stand up here all day long and tell you, don't do this, don't do that. I mean, the book, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus already did it. But none of that makes a bit of difference if you're not seeking after Christ. All you're doing is living a life of rules and regulations. People ask me, well, why is it that you want to do this? Because I want to serve God. My heart desires to serve God and serve his people. And so you have to ask these questions when it comes to obedience. Am I willing to give up everything 
for the cause of Christ? Am I willing to give up everything for the cause of Christ? Will I let God have his way with me each and every day? And then am I willing to pay the price of radical obedience? It sounds like that's, to me, if you're, if I, see, I know what's left in this message, so I don't necessarily have the weight on my shoulders that you have right now, because I feel and sense the heaviness of this type of message and this type of word. So along with the radical teaching of Jesus and the radical obedience that he calls you to, there's also this thing that I'm so thankful for. It's called radical grace. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 9 speaks of it. It says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Don't be mistaken. Anybody who refuses to obey God, the devil is at work in their heart. Can't get that twisted. You have to understand that. All of us used to live that way. Following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature, by our very own nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. But here it is in verse number four. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by the gr- God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. So God can point to us all in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but I want to be one of those ones that he can use as an example to say this is what my grace can do. While, yes, there is a path that we must walk, and yes, righteousness is as relevant today as it's ever been in history, and holiness is absolutely a necessity when it comes to serving God. But understand, Jesus even preached this message with the understanding that you would fall short, that you would not live up to the message that he was preaching, that you would make mistakes, that you might murder, you might lust, you might commit adultery, you might be angry, you might sin in your anger, you might be disobedient, but there is grace, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. But be very careful. Grace is not a license to sin. It's by no means... Matter of fact, Paul even emphatically answered that question. He says, he says, by no means should you look at grace as your excuse to continue to sin. I, don't, I make a mistake every single day of my life. I, each day I fall short of God's glory. But grace is what covers that day. God saved you by his grace when you believed in verse number eight. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. The law says, stone him. Grace says, embrace him. The law says, the wages of sin is death. Grace says, the gift of God is eternal life. I'm not just talking about salvation. Yes, that moment is perhaps one of the most important moments of your life. I'm talking about your journey of faith that began the day you said yes 
to Jesus. The law tells me what I must do for God, but grace tells me what Jesus has already done for me. You do not, hear me, you do not have to be good enough. You do not. In fact, the prerequisite to following Jesus is an acknowledgement that I am not good enough, that I cannot measure up on my own, that there is this perfect God and this perfect Son and there's this perfect heaven and I, I aspire to be with God in heaven because to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. That's where I want to be. But man, the journey to that place is so has got so many twists and turns and ups and downs. The only way to get it is through the bridge that is known as Jesus Christ. He's what bridges the imperfect people to a very perfect God. It is a prerequisite to acknowledge and know that I will never be good enough for his grace. He covered my sin with his righteousness. He covered my shame and guilt with grace. Here's what I believe. I believe that the believer should be the most gracious person on earth. We should. We should be the ones with more grace than anyone walking this earth. But unfortunately, far too often we become judgmental, even hateful. All in the name of, you name it, whatever you want, whatever disagreement comes up. We must not compromise on biblical morality. Jesus never did that. Never one time did Jesus compromise in biblical morality, but... He embraced everyone. He didn't suggest, okay, you're immoral, so I can't embrace you. He embraces everyone. Part of this church, I have preached it. I believe it. It is messy, and sometimes it is dirty, but this is a place where you can belong long before you ever believe. And I say that because it wants to be a place that just embraces God's people wherever they are found, whatever condition they are found in. Chad, you can come and get set. I'm going to wrap up my message with this. <coughs> I think we can view grace one of two ways. We either review it as a reward or a gift. And how we view grace has some very serious implications on how we view God, how we view ourselves, and how we view others. Simply in how we view grace. If you view grace as a reward for what you've done, then that literally means that every single time you do something, you're expecting a reward. And if you do not receive a reward for what you've done, then you are no longer good enough. You put the same context onto someone else. And you say, if you've not received the rewards that I have received, then you're, you must not be walking in the grace of God. If we view grace as a gift, a free gift, from the most loving and forgiving being in all the universe, instead of making us work our way to him, 
which can never happen. God supplied his way for us. We also understand the depth and the weight of our sin, that we aren't special. We aren't even good. Jesus responded to them, him being called good and saying, why do you call me good? No one is good but the Father. This was Jesus who responded and said, why do you call me good? If we view grace as a reward, it changes. Rewards are given in recognition of service or accomplishment. As if God, is out, after watching you, decides that your accomplishments are worth his favor. Difficult way to live. Because nothing we ever do measures up to the favor that God gives us. If we view grace as a reward, it strips God of his power to redeem and makes the work of Jesus on the cross worthless. Because if after all, if it's all about our performance, why do we even need Jesus? The idea is if my good outweighs my bad, somehow I'll find myself in the presence of God when it's all over. And let me just help you out. Your good will never outweigh your bad. It's human nature. I'm going to leave you with this thought right before I pray. Christianity is meant to work from the cross, not to it.